join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. So, um, I'm Chris LeBlanc, and Baton Rouge is my hometown. Mm -hmm. This is where uh, I uh, was born and raised in Baton Rouge, and uh, over the years, kind of been around this area and moved out here. I kind of live on the outskirts of Baton Rouge now. Um, and moved out of the city. It's a little dangerous place now, <laughs> like every other city. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, grew up here, born and raised here, and uh, started playing music at a really early age, you know? Yeah. Where you grew up, was it you were inner city as a child and then you were able to move out to more rural yeah, areas? Yeah, I was, I was living, we were living kind of um, on, on the edge, of, yeah, right kind of in the busier part of the city. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, growing up in the city and, and uh, but you know, this town was a different kind of town back then. It was like a, it was, it was kind of like a, a you know, Baton Rouge is being the capital city is a, um, is a very transient town, man. It's a very, uh, it's, it's transient because it's capital city. There's a lot of governmental jobs. And then there's also uh, the college, you know. Sure. There's two big colleges here with LSU and Southern University. So it's transient in that a lot of people are coming in, they're going out, they're traveling. And... Um, it is a different vibe, you know. It's 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 the Baton Rouge is a is a different kind of place in that it's like um, it has a city element. It always had like a I say always, but to me it always had this city element, you know, compared to on a smaller scale. Yeah. But um, uh, it had the city element because it was uh, as compared to like other towns in the state sure uh you know i don't i don't know if i'm not going to say any other places to not put down on someone's place but baton rouge is a city and it has everything that the city has for you yeah you know the good the bad the ugly you know sure and uh you know um I think uh, one of the selling points for, or one of the ways it got started as being called um, Hollywood South, like the Louisiana yeah. uh, state, uh, was because you could drive like an hour or two in any direction and completely change the aesthetic from a, planta a plantation to uh, you know an, an industrial park to yes. uh, the swamps, yes. to the woods, and, and you know, yeah. some you hilly go areas. Yeah, right. yeah you, could go, you could go north of here 40 minutes to St. Francisville, and you're on bluffs, and looks like, it yeah. looks like 
the mountain hills sure. or something. You know, it's like <laughs> it's every. You know, it really is a. Uh, it's it's one of those places, man. I mean, and uh, again, like you said, it's like um, we're of course being here and um, always, you know, knowing that they're shooting all these films and we, you know, shooting a lot of really big films here. Yeah. And like that kind of came here a few years back. And it's weird, you know, that all of that was going on. There will be, it is Hollywood South in a lot of ways, you know, because people, um, you'll be driving somewhere and they'll have a road blocked out because there's, you know, movies That's going right. on. That's right. You know? Yep. And, I've, uh, I've been there before. I've been downtown around uh, <laughs> the end of Frenchman and uh, you'll see uh, down on Esplanade, it's like, it's, it's, I know it's one o'clock in the morning, but it looks like daylight down there because they got five hundred thousand watts of lights down there. Yeah, they're filming. yeah, that's it's, crazy. that's kind of what's happening, you know. It's like um, I think it, you know, of course, it had to do with the, probably the tax breaks that the state gave oh, yeah. Yeah. for people to film here, and and uh, and then again, it, that brings in a bunch of uh, actors and sure. these people you run into. I, I'll play gigs and see people. I'm like. What are you doing here, <laughs> He's man? He's playing on my television. <laughs> you know? so what was uh, yeah. what was outside of your window as a kid? What did you see looking at? Oh man, it was cool. You know, I mean, it was a lot of ways. It was like I grew up uh, with uh, dirt bikes, and you know, it was like kind of like that, man. It was like I had, um, you know, as soon as we kind of, uh, as soon as we we we, we were living kind of closer into the city when I'm a kid, and then as I got to be a little older, we ended up moving towards the outside of Baton Rouge um, and being a kid. And then the, it turns out that the area that I grew up, uh, which was kind of in the east, east section of Baton Rouge, um, you know, we move out there in like 1978, man, and I'm a kid. And I, I, you don't realize where you are because you're a kid. And then it was like I ended up growing up in like one of the coolest places yeah. and cool, coolest times in the world, bro, where it's like so much freedom. It was a beautiful place to grow up. You know, it, was, it had everything, you know, <clears throat> it was um, neighborhood, rock and roll, kids, skateboarders, yeah. you know, everything that everything that the 70s and 80s had, to, you know, and, and here we were, we were just like. Uh, of course, growing up, you know, you find your circle and it's, we were playing young, you know, I, I grew up really, uh, around a musical family that like, Oh, okay. I really did. Yeah, man. It was like, it was like that. My dad was a, a really talented singer and a, and a musician and a bass player. And even my mom was a singer. My sisters are singers, my uncles, everybody wow. like Everywhere I grew, everywhere around me, was was music, you know. And so, growing up this way, it was one of these situations where, you know, I grew up playing with family and friends. Whether it was like family functions, people getting together, um, a dirt bike track, yeah, uh, park, <clears throat> you name it. It's like where well, there's music, and so and. And what's been cool about, I just always, there was this approach that we always kind of felt, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize it until I got older to realize that there was no us and them. You see what I'm saying? Like 
There's us up on the stage and then the crowd is them. There was no none of that. It was we. Yeah. Because I'm around my loved ones and I'm around people who everybody played. Mm-hmm. Everybody was playing music and I was young. I started, you know, man, I, I picked, my dad was a musician. Really one of my first like moments of, I would be around and watching them play and uh, just digging, watching what was going on, drums. I'm watching my dad play bass, guitar. I was like, I was baffled by guitar playing because like, I thought to myself like, how do you do this, you know? You know, how does how does someone, you know, it's like the big yeah. mystery, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it looks complex. There's a yeah. lot going on there. And then, you know, all the music that I was hearing when I'm a kid, I'm like, oh, my God, it's just, guitar ruled in the world in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know? Yeah. And I'm a kid and digging it. But being around live music, I watched my dad play. We had a music, they had a, in the house when we, uh, they had a music room. That's where all everything was set up in there. Drums, bass amps, guitar amps, everything. Beautiful. And and uh, and my dad's band. They had rehearsals in there. I'd go sit in there, watch them rehearse, listening to music. Here was, and then one day when my dad's at work, I go into the music room. You know, it's the age old story that sure. everyone does. I go in and click on the bass amp. I hear, doom, and I'm like. You're Pick live. up the bass. I'm like, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. I'm like, oh my god, you know. And you're, I, I was a bass player first, you know. Oh, okay. Picked, first thing I played, you know, picked up bass. I watched what he was doing. I could see his patterns, and all of a sudden, I'm like, and then start feeling it. Boom. Well, then you know, I'm like, I'm a kid. I'm seven years old. Oh wow. Seven years old playing bass, you know, and then. By eight years old, I could play bass. Knowing songs, nine years old, knowing songs. They're like, pull me up. <clears throat> I would go to my dad's, you know, I'd go to their gigs and this and that. And see, my dad was a singer and a bass player, but as soon as I could start, like, kind of, I knew, like, their songs and stuff, I'd get up, he'd give me the bass, and then he's front singing, you see? Mm-hmm. And so... And who doesn't want to see a 10-year-old kid? Sure. You know, do it. You know, so it was like, it was always, you know, wherever I was, people were like, look at this kid. You know, like, I just, I really, I, I had it when I was young. I, yeah. had the, I had the thing. I was always tuned in and listening to music. And then... Your family then, sounds like they were really close, huh? The family you, was cool. When you, how many people were in your family? So... Um, there's mom and dad. The immediate family. Yeah, and then I'm the oldest. I have, and then I have a younger a sister that's a year younger than me, and then I have a, another sister that's seven years younger than me. Okay. So, um, and and it turns out that as time goes on, like everybody's, like both of my sisters are incredible singers. Mm-hmm. They're just everybody's like tuned yeah, in. Huh? Yeah. It's cool like that. You know? What was the reason for moving? Um, to the outskirts or further to the outskirts do you know or you're um, kind of too young to know <clears throat> you know I think it was more of like uh, I think you know dad and they ended up they were just kind of looking to like you know at Baton Rouge was uh, it was growing like crazy you know yeah. the city grew this city grew so much and, and, and actually the direction that we moved you know here's my dad I had 
<clears throat> my dad was, uh, I had younger parents. You know, my dad's 18 when I'm born. My mom's 19. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, they're young, young parents. So, you know, they started out in a smaller house. And then, of course, you know, moving on to bigger houses and kind of moving. Yeah. Kind of getting just kind of in different areas, you know, in Baton Rouge, moving from, say, North Baton Rouge to Mid-City and then from Mid-City to kind of the outer outskirts of Baton Rouge. Uh, a lot of Baton Rouge was moving that way. It was yeah. moving east into a neighborhood such as... Broadmoor, Sherwood Forest, Bel Air, all these different. Yeah, it was just kind of moving out that way, and, and that's where that's where we landed. Yeah, and so it um, sounded like it was all for all for all the right reasons. Anyway, I mean, it yeah, was oh, yeah, more yeah. more uh, room to kind of spread out. Yeah, and quiet time for kids, safe place. And my grandparents, like I had a, I had my dad's parents, and did they lived kind of close where we moved? So it was kind of cool. Nice. I was able to. We're very family oriented. You know, my dad's my dad's one of uh, ten kids, wow. and I'm the oldest grandson. You know, my dad is the first to have a kid out of the whole family. I'm the oldest grandchild out of like 28 grandkids. Jeez. It's a big it's Leblanc's. You know? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Plenty, plenty. You know. Sure. So, so um, yeah, and and it was so it was like. Uh, it was just surrounded by this family element. That sure. was, um, and then, you know, man, as time went on, man, I was like, kind of uh, started going into, you know, I, they were taking me into clubs, you know, when I'm young, man, taking me that in. That was a little bit easier to do back then. It was easier. Yeah. Now, the people were rough, man. Yeah. You got to imagine, you know, like there's people... You know, I walk in and I'm a kid in the club and people were adults back then. They were like, you know, get this kid out the club. People had shit to say about it. You know, yeah. they wanted to, they didn't want kids around, you know, while they're talking and, and whatever's going on in, in, the, in the club vibes, you know. Sure. But I grew up quick um, being in the club scene for sure. Cause and you, you had an occasion to be there because you're... Your dad was playing. Like yeah, dad's band dad, was playing. Yeah, there. they would they would go play there. Gotcha. And uh, and dad, you know, my dad was he was so supportive, bro. My dad was like he really was. It was yeah. like one of these things where you know he was so proud that I was like that I took to music, mm -hmm. and my dad was really like my dad lived the zest of life. You know, he was just he's a really open get it done you know just it was a lot of fun man he's yeah. just larger than life dude like um, i'm a big dude yeah he was bigger than <laughs> i am you should see this dude he was like a tower they called him the bear oh yeah yeah <laughs> i mean he really was you know? yeah. yeah i've heard that before <laughs> where um yeah. somebody's uh, father or uncle or aunt or whatever will be involved in music and then the kid picks up an instrument and their eyes kind of light up and the bond strengthens you know and it yeah. kind of makes them proud and kid maybe gets a little bit more attention than his brothers or sisters because yeah. he's, he's doing the same thing oh of Dad course did, you but know? yeah and then yeah. yeah like of course like and then in family situations where we're all around you know i'm the oldest grandkid and here's my grandparents bro and like you know they wanted to hear certain music, you know. My grandparents, they they love 
old country music. And that's kind of like I grew up. The first music that I learned how to play was Hank Williams songs. Okay. You know, going out and playing. Today I passed you on the street and my heart fell at your feet. I mean, it's like singing these songs and I'm a little kid. I'm a kid singing Jambalaya, Crawfish Pie, you know, and and if I'm the kid and the grandparents are like, oh, look at him. I mean, you get yeah. every, you get everything if you're a kid. Oh, yeah, milking it, you're milking it for all it's worth, <laughs> yes. I'm sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's do another one, yeah. you know I mean? You know, so it was, like, it was like that, you know. I got all the love, man. Sure. It was awesome, you know. You um, Did you take any formal, uh, like, music theory or anything? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. Well, I, so... So then, here it is, you know, not long after we moved out, of, out into the east section of Baton Rouge, <clears throat> I, in the, th in the fourth grade, yeah, man, in the fourth grade, I had an opportunity to join band at school. They had okay. a band program at my elementary school, and I told my dad I wanted to join band, of course. He's like, yeah, you know, so mm -hmm. I uh, I joined band, and he was like, what, what do you want to play? I really wanted to play saxophone. So we go to the store, we go to the music store, and dad's like, yeah, we want to get a saxophone, and I'll probably get an alto saxophone. And the guy's like, okay, well, we can get you set up a student saxophone, even back then. A student alto saxophone was like 650 bucks. Yeah, brass is not cheap, man. It's expensive. Yeah. And, and I remember, you know, my dad, uh, they, you know, them, them telling him it was like 650, 700 bucks. And I saw him kind of, you know, yeah, I, he, I saw him kind of wince a little bit like, wow, you know. And I was like, I was like, no, maybe we won't do saxophone. I was like, how much is a trumpet? And they're like 300 bucks. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll play trumpet. Mm -hmm. So we got a trumpet. And, and then I, you know, so I started playing trumpet in the band. And then I stayed in, I stayed in band from the fourth grade every year. Yeah. I was like, you know, elementary school, junior high school, high school. But I realized then that being a trumpet player, um, and I, I had my head in music. I was reading. Uh, I had really great instructors throughout the years, and I realized then that it wasn't so much about the m instrument that I was playing, but it was more about me getting into this paper, yeah, okay. and getting into reading and 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 music and 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 putting it all together. It's the That's rest. The yeah, that's yeah. the bones right there. That's the, the mechanics. Yeah, for sure. It's it's each instrument being the being the ingredients, and the recipe is music. Sure, you know. And now you had already picked up the bass by that time. Well, I mean, right. I, you messed around with it. Yeah, and, played bass. Yeah, and then could sing even like being a little kid, kind of could sing. And by ten years old, then eleven years old, I'm playing drums. So, so, but my question is, where did where did the idea for the saxophone come from? If you you weren't around that as much as you were around no, stringed yeah, instruments kind of, and right, drums and things, right. so where I did that come from? It just being wanting to be a saxophone player, like I, it was in music a lot. Like I heard, 
like I knew that I was I would see someone playing the saxophone and I was like you know I, I have memories of like watching certain people playing like a a really you know a tenor saxophone is really to me is like wow it's incredible you know yeah. um, and I, I just kind of wanted to play you know when it was time to join band I was like I saxophone it's just it's rock and roll mm -hmm. it's it's like the uh, it just it was always kind of the go-to thing that was on stage that was you know maybe it's because like I was watching my dad's band playing and there's drums bass guitars but there's no horn player and I'm like maybe I could be this dude yeah, that's why it was funny you know, to me that like, you chose that because that wasn't around you. Right, it wasn't around. It, it wasn't in my world. Right, and like I was like, man, I, that would have been so cool, you know. Sure. And like I always think of like, you know, when we think about it later on, you know, it's like the if you're in a combo setting, and there's a drummer and a bass man, and then the third guy, the third corner of the triangle of music would either be a guitar player or a piano player. Yeah. And then the fourth guy who makes it square is a sax man. Yeah. You know, he's like, it's like the, it's like the, any jazz combo recipe, there's gonna be that horn player in the, and then uh, same thing, Chuck Berry. I mean, it's guitar, bass, drums, tenor man. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause the timbre, you know, the timbre of the, the saxophone is so close to guitar. Right. That it's kind of, they work so well together. Yeah, you're just kind of, you, you're painting, you're filling out the EQ, basically. Yes, and, you are. And, and it's uh, got your the lead, lead sure. the reed buzz, yeah. the heavy, everything. It's just like, it's, it, you can grind it like a guitar. Sure, yeah. It's killer, you know? Yeah, I mean, you, can, you can rock star it up. Yes, yeah, if you're yeah. the sax man, you can, yeah, you can rock star it. Yeah. You know, it's like... It's so rock and roll. And uh, I still, you know, my buddy let me borrow his tenor saxophone and I just <laughs> try to play it and I'm like, I suck. I yeah, can't play because it's I hard. Did the, yeah, I did the same thing. I was at a friend's house and uh, he had his father sitting in a closet, his father's sax from when his father was in high school. And I was like, I really want to check these out. So I, I went and got it repaired and I'm standing there messing with it and I, I made the dog cry. Seriously, the dog right. was like, Burr. <laughs> it sounded terrible. I was like, well, I'm trying again next year. You know? <laughs> that was pretty bad. So you did, you did high school band. And when you, when you started fourth grade, what year are we talking? Uh, let's see. Well, it had been fourth grade. I think I moved out there. It was like 78. Uh-huh. Yeah, 78. Maybe 1978, 79. I was born March 4th, 1969. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm maybe nine, ten, ten years old. Yeah, okay. And getting into band. And then when I went to junior high school, I get in. And then, <clears throat> you know, when I go to high school, when I go to high school, uh, you know, being I, I played some football in my junior high days mm -hmm. you know like seventh and eighth grade but i never I, I i was i never had that passion it was always music sure it's always music you know and um 
So when it was time to go to high school, they were like, are you going to play football? I'm like, no way, no way. I want to go play band, you know, I want to do band. And, um, and then my high school, going to high school, it opened my world up. I had an incredible, uh, I had an incredible band director. Mm -hmm. This dude who was uh, so cool, he was young. Uh, his name was Wayne Frazier. This guy was cool, man. He was one of these dudes where, and, and, and when I went to high school, they had a jazz band. Okay. And I wasn't so crazy about, you know, you're going into high school and I wasn't so crazy about being a trumpet player in high school band. Mm -hmm. But I knew I wanted to play, get, I wanted to get on the bass in jazz band. And uh, I told him, I met him before school started and I said, yeah, I want to join the jazz band. He goes, well, you know, to be in jazz band, you have to play in symphonic and marching band. That's how they keep you in, you know. And he, uh, he, says, he says, I know, he says, I've already heard about you. He's like, I already know who you are. I know you play trumpet, and you're going to play trumpet. You're not going to just play bass. You're going to play trumpet in marching band and symphonic band. And if you want to play bass and jazz band, you can do that. But you're going to play trumpet. And you're going to have your head in music. That's what's going to happen. And I was like, okay. He had heard about me because he knew I was coming. And so. How did you take that? Because I'm wondering how. I, yeah, I was, I was kind of blown away because I thought I was going to pull. I thought I was going to pull the sheet over him. I thought I was going to be like, I don't want to play. I don't want to. I, I want, at that point, I just wanted to play bass and go to school and do school and play bass. And I thought that was going to be my world. Sure. And it, and it, and, but I'm a kid. You're 13, 14 years old going into high school. You don't know shit. No. You know? And so I go there and he goes, this is what you're going to do. And I'm like, okay. So I ended up, you know, going in marching band every day after school, learning you know, learning shows, uh, symphonic band, working on serious symphonic music, and like uh, jazz band was great, but it was like I was just, it just soaked in music from the time I started high school. So it was like, then all of a sudden, like my knowledge gets so much better, and I'm growing, I'm growing musically. I end up being. By the time I, you know, playing music through school, musicians, bands, being off. By the time I become, in, at the end of my junior year of high school, they're like, you know, you should try out for drum major of the marching band. And I'm like, I don't know if I, dude, I become the drum major of a marching band with 200 people in it. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, go to drum major camp. And then it was like, back then, truthfully, man, it was a discipline and it really taught me the discipline of music to like that there are there are boundaries within your work and when i say boundaries you don't step over that you know you respect this music you don't you don't you know when you're reading and you're part of this thing or when they are 
you there is a discipline that goes along are you referring to your place within it or how how you yeah how you present the full yeah. body of work which... how you're in it okay. not yeah because you can present it to present it the best it can be you got to stay in your wheelhouse work your ass off and all of a sudden you know you go to these contests and and you know, we see, we didn't know what we looked like until we get back in the, back then, you don't know. And then we get back in the band room and, okay, here's Friday night show. And you see all the show lay out on the football field and you're like, that was fucking incredible. We did that. You don't <laughs> yeah. know, yeah. you know. You're like, oh, all we know is in the moment we're cruising. Sure, you're you know, a cog you're, yeah. in the transmission, man. Yeah, sure, yeah. Dude, you're in it, you know, you're in it. You don't know. And then. We're like, okay, we go back and they're like, we're going to watch film. I mean, we watch film of, you know, Monday, Monday morning, this is what we're doing. And it was like, it became this thing where I just was like, I dug the discipline. I needed the discipline. Yeah. I was, I needed it because I was young, uh, you know, and every kid needs that, bro. I needed it. I needed to belong to something. Sure. And, um, and I, and I belong to. I belonged to symphonic and marching band. I was never a great improvising trumpet player. I was the trumpet player who played music. Mm -hmm. Red paper played. I was just another ant on the hill making the hill beautiful. Sure. And that's beautiful to me. It was like, and then I became the drum major of this. Then I, I was able to direct the band work on shows help layout shows um and then when we out of when we got out of marching band season and then we're in symphonic band season i'm on the podium directing symphonic music and mm -hmm. and it was like that it was like um but when i graduated high school i was awarded uh, from the marine corps semper fidelis uh musical excellence award from they give one or two i think they give one or two of them to eat to us to students in each state wow so like i won that man and i was like i was going to go to L i went to lsu uh i was thinking about doing tiger band but at this time by this time and i get out of high school i've already been in 25 bands i've already played hundreds and hundreds of gigs because I was the kid, you know, like watch. Now, you know, going from a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid playing bass to like watch. I'm 14 years old, a freshman in high school. And they're grown men that are friends of my dad's who are musicians. And they give me the work tape. They give me two cassette tapes that has 40 songs on it uh -huh. and they're like this is the band's tape you know we need a bass player you come work and <clears throat> I'm like a teenage kid like I had the skill set I was one of these kids that like I would listen you see because uh, I would go to go back and and find my position in knowing how music's laid out being a bass player I would put on records learn the whole record I, I, you know, I'd put on any record, all of these records, put on, be a basement, listen to, and then through that, you learn how music's laid out, you know, the front, sure, the verse, 
the pre-course, the course, back into a verse, another book, just arrangements and knowing music and knowing key center and knowing what to fall and where to fall. You now, know, let me ask you what came first because it seems like in band, during your time in band at high school, it kind of taught you to start completely zoomed in and then zoom out because you, you started yeah. with building the foundation and then you got to a point where you could make larger arrangements and be responsible for things on a grander scale. Yeah. Um, that was that was your curriculum in school. Right. But out of school, did did kind of one beget the other? Where, right. I mean, did, so would you sit at home to learn these things because you wanted to learn the mechanics like they taught you in school to learn exactly. the mechanics? Exactly. Okay. I would tell you that. Like, like, from the time, I'm, like when I'm when I'm in school band, and I'm learning, that we're learning a piece of music, mm-hmm. or this or that, what's going on? All of a sudden, you know, we're you're learning, all, you're reading this music, and it's all coming along, and then all of a sudden, it's all developing around this this thing, you know, and you're learning. Uh, arrangements and where everybody where all the pieces fit and then so when it came time to like go play songs and pop music I say pop pop music but like music that was the that's on the radio that sure. oh it was like it was easy to me it was like it was so easy it was like one of these things where I started hearing you know there was there were certain bands that I, I heard and I was just like, yeah, I was like taken to them. I was really into a lot of different pop music. And of course it was like, you know, in America in 19, in the early eighties. And it's like a pop explosion of, yeah. of music and the way things are presented, whether it was rock or the, you know, the, you know, reggae or the police or different, you know, all these bands that I could like take from and and learn feel, you know, like, you know, the police is like the greatest reggae band ever, ever. Sure. The greatest. Yeah. I mean, they're a rock band, but they're the greatest reggae band ever. Yeah. And so I learned all this. It sounded like you're playing world music. And then it made me listen to Bob Marley. And then it made me listen to like, yeah. oh, then you're like, oh, the Clash sounds like this. And then Duran Duran. And then you know all this everything but still like there's all this music i mean the first concert my mom and dad take me to it's 1976 and they take me to go see willie nelson and waylon jennings it's the first music i see and i'm like wow yeah <laughs> wow bro and it's the red-headed stranger tour and they're playing blue eyes crying in the rain and all these songs and all this music and I'm like far out and then the next show I go see my uncle takes me to the Superdome to go see the Rolling Stones in 1980 and there's fucking 90,000 people there bro and I'm like the Rolling Stones I'm a kid I'm 11 years old and probably the youngest kid in the place yeah and I'm watching the Rolling Stones I'm like I'm gonna play rock and roll for the rest of my life. I'm I'm gonna play music for the rest of my life. I don't care what it takes. Yeah. I'm doing it. Yeah. 
I'm doing it. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to play music till the end. When you were yeah. um, when you were first talking about kind of discovering pop music, and you said it was easy. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Easy to deconstruct and, and see how it was put together? Yeah, I think it was easier for me to dissect it uh -huh. because I was already into like... You were learning symphony. I was learning so symphony. The, yeah, symphony. Pop music, music is like yeah. supremely palatable Gerber baby food. <laughs> yeah, but it's groove music. It's but groove, it, but yeah. But it's but easy to, to put together, I guess, right. construct. You know, it's like yeah. I can hear... I mean... Like, I love, when I was growing up, my favorite rock and roll band is Leonard Skinner. Yes. Because, I mean, it's, it's American rock and roll. Who doesn't love Leonard Skinner? Love Leonard Skinner. We're going to get along just fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's my, my favorite. Yeah. Like, the best. Sure. Like, like, how that came into, yeah. Leonard Skinner is the greatest American rock and roll band ever. Yeah. Like what what it is, and like I learned that I would listen to it and go, I would learn their tunes, you know, and learn that music. And not that it was easier, but it was like the layout was was easier for me to take to than this symphonic music that I'm learning. Ba -da, da -da -da -ba -ba, all these different sure. moves and stuff. It's like there's yeah yeah. It's kind of like it's it's just easier to oh sure there's less moving parts yeah assimilate um, it yeah. you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the 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 transition or i should say the translation uh between uh the symphony music that was part of your curriculum and the uh pop music and and rock music and and things of that nature that you preferred um how did the two translate in your mind? Was was symphony music less relatable, or was rock music more relatable, or why were you drawn more to one than the yeah. other? Um, you know, I think one was like, I think like the sim, I think a lot of the the uh, symphony music or like the laid out written music was part of my discipline uh, to. At school, it was a thing sure. that I didn't, I didn't go home and practice. I, I didn't really practice a lot uh, of, of of being at home. At the end of the day, I had already like in band class. I had like you know moving forward to like say junior high or high school. Really, in high school, there's. There's a symphonic band. Then I was in. A, I had a jazz band class mm -hmm. that day. I was in jazz band all four years. So two music classes. I was in a choir class. I was a singer. So I was all, already again reading, singing, reading, and and then so that's all at school. So by the time I got home, I was like I just put I'd put on a record and go to bass and like yeah. you know only because like. Um, so there really was that, it was like I was getting this full, full globe of like, had my feel of the symphonic music, but then all of a sudden, maybe, maybe putting on, I mean, of course, if you're a music fan and you put on a record and you're playing, it's just like freedom, like, yeah. I mean, you know, and, and the truth of it is, is this, 
I didn't. I wasn't playing guitar then. Not. I wasn't even playing any. I, I would like. I knew some. I would. I would strum some guitar, acoustic, but I was not a guitar player then. Right. Like, I was only back then. I was. I was bass player. I played drums. I played trumpet. I was a singer. I would sing, and you know, <clears throat> but. I was surrounded by, back then, you're surrounded by amazing guitar players everywhere. They're killer. Yeah. They're great. So I didn't need to be a bass, I didn't need to be a guitar player back then. And especially becoming a young teenager, if you're a kid like me who's a singer and can play bass, you've got a gig. Yeah. You got a gig, dude. And that's what I got to like. So my dad's friends, they'd give me the work tape. And I'm 14, 15 years old, and they take me on real gigs, and I'm going making $300 a gig. <laughs> and I'm 15 years old, and the guy gives me 300 bucks. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then, you know, we go play a Christmas party. He gives me $500. And I'm like, I go play a New Year's Eve gig. He gives me $500. I'm like, I, I, I was blown away. This your, is father, a, your father's band was a, a cover band? Yeah, they played a lot of, like, cover music and then, like, some... Kind of R&B, like back then I say R&B. They would play uh, Motown-ish vibe sounding stuff. And then yeah. my dad was like, loved that kind of singing. Any any originals or just uh, Not so, not a no. lot, not yeah. a lot. Um, and, and, and truthfully, there wasn't so much of a, people didn't really take to that. It's a hard sell. Yeah, huh? It's a hard sell. It's a very yeah, yeah. Um, and, and to get they they were going to play music. The trick it is a very hard sell. It still is. It's, yeah. Oh my god, it's the hardest. I mean, it's like that's why. I mean, there's people out there that are playing their own music. Yeah, love them, and I did it. I put out records on my own. I wrote tunes. I love it. I did it when I was a lot younger. I'll still go play. And play some of my tunes. I love playing some of my tunes. But the truth is, is like, if you can, if you can play something that someone's a little bit familiar with, yeah, and then put your thumbprint on it, you're doing it. Yeah, you're doing it. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, again, it's kind of being, to me, it's being a little bit unselfish with your musical talent. I think it's kind of oftentimes for someone to go, hey, this is my thing. I want you to dig my thing. That's asking a lot of people these days. Yeah. Really. I get what you're saying though, because I mean, you know, to, to, to play your own music is kind of something for you. Right. You, you're gonna enjoy that part, but right. playing the covers, the, the crowd is gonna identify right. with and, and maybe enjoy and that part playing, a little more. If you, you, know? you, there's so, I love music <laughs> so much that it's like, look man, I love playing other people's music. Mm -hmm. Ray Charles, love playing other people's music. Elvis Presley, love playing other people's music. Yeah. That's how they did. I mean, they not only did they make their own music, but same thing, I mean, Willie Nelson, he wrote a million great songs, but he played a million other sure. people's great oh, songs. Oh, yeah, it's definitely it's a foot in the door to say the least. Yes, yeah. it's like when you love the music, then all of a sudden, however you get to it is where you want to be. Yeah. 
And uh, the reason I asked is because you had said that you I forget how it, how you said it exactly, but you weren't really into improvisational performances. Um, and right, and as a horn player, as a horn player, yeah. But it, so I, that's what I was kind of moving toward is. Um, First of all, I understand why now, because you were around, your dad was in a cover band. So you saw the cover band life and you knew what it was to be in the cover band. So yeah. improv wasn't really familiar territory, I guess. Right. What, um, so how did it come to starting to um, make your own music, right? Your own yeah. music, improvisation, things of that nature. That was right. strictly on bass? That as that a, well, as a, no. And then, so I'll tell you, so it became different. So I, after I got, a, you know, truly I, I didn't play guitar through high school, none of that. It wasn't until after I got out of high school mm -hmm. that, and I was going to LSU, I was not in Tiger Band, I was only just going to classes, doing this, and I wanted to. I wanted to go out and kind of front my own band. I wanted to be. I was playing. I had played with different people, and but I was. I was at a place where I'm like, I don't. I just wanted to do whatever the, I wanted to do. I wanted to do, and and I felt like the only way for me to get there was going to be to get better on guitar and I don't know why what nobody told me that I just saw I just all the music that I was digging I mean like truly growing up when I started like getting when I realized like I'd all there's two artists that I, it was Jimi Hendrix and Prince, was like, I mean, Prince, like, you, this dude played everything on his records. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix, same, he played <clears throat> a lot of shit on his records. I mean, and these, these guys, you know, like, I wanted to be free, I wanted to play music, I wanted to be free enough to improvise, like the moments that I would listen to like Jimi Hendrix's live music and know where Jimi Hendrix was taking music live and like it it, it sucked me in, dude. There was like I wanted to I wanted to be able to ride the wave in music like Jimi Hendrix. Sure. Wrote his way. Experience. Did you feel like it was uh, like a weak link? It was in, the weakest link in my in your chain. catalog because the weakest. Yeah, I was not a guitar player. Things, then. Right. I was like, if and then it made me realize, like, okay, I can do all these. And what was cool is like, you know, I had already being a bass player, knowing key center, knowing where songs are going, sure, knowing drums, <clears throat> knowing feel and vibe and. All this other music, when I went to go play guitar, it was like, I thought it was something that was going to be this like, 
mind like, fuck. Right. I thought it was going to mind fuck me to death. Right. I was always intimidated because I was around dudes who could really fucking play. Right. And then, but you can ask my uncle, man. It's like I picked up the guitar and one day just like started. I was watching these guys playing guitar and, and kind of figuring it out and checking just listening and all the music that I was listening to, you know, Prince and um, who is hands down probably the like greatest guitar player. I mean, Prince, come on, he's nuts, nuts great. <laughs> yeah, like, and I'm listening to all this and going like, and then when I picked up the guitar, I just start kind of cruising. And then, then with some help from my friends, who were like really guitar, they were like, I would go to my friends, I, I went to really two dudes that, not lessons, just us being around each other and watching, I would watch, I'd go to their gigs and watch them play. Yeah. And then one time my buddy, he laid this thing out for me, he said, on the neck, I have a, you know, I have this thing that's, you can lay it out, each note on the neck and everything in the way it's all laid out. The E major scale, on the whole guitar neck. Mm -hmm. Top, bottom, side to side, the whole thing. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, what's up everybody? Normally in the middle of podcasts to give you a bunch of advertisements, but on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our members. Today I've got for you a band by the name Vermilion Whiskey. They're a hard rock, southern, and stoner metal sludge band from Lafayette, Louisiana. They're inspired by bands like COC, Down, Sabbath, Judas Priest, and Skinner, to name a few. When asked what was the biggest factor that played a role in deciding to make music a career, Ross Brown, the lead guitarist, said it wasn't a decision. We were all afflicted by this, to write and play music. It is ingrained in who we are. Now, this band has been around for over a decade with about 100 shows under their belt. They've played with bands like Crowbar, Wofat, Mothership, and many more. They're on all major streaming platforms, including NewOrleansMusicians.com. And their third album comes out today. It features Tommy Buckley of Crowbar and Soylent Green on drums. So be sure to go check that one out. It's called Crimson and Stone. Another cool piece of info is that their label, 10 South Productions, is not only their label and production studio, but it's also an underground YouTube channel and music blog. They've got a nice website up with merch, colored wax, and other great stuff at vermilionwhiskey.com. They'll be in Metairie at the Marsh Room July 15th and in New Orleans at Gaza Gaza August 26th. So without further ado, here's one I like off their brand spanking new album. This one's called The Get Down. Check it out. Check it out. Now back to our show. And so I start looking at this and I'm like, and it's like I broke the matrix. Okay. I really did. Like you, you, when you look at the guitar neck and it adds up long ways and crossways, it's like 
I feel like I broke the matrix and knowing that, okay, cool. I know where these positions are. I know. And then all of a sudden it's just repeating. It's like this, it's like a circle of never ending what you can get out of it. <laughs> you know, okay. it just, it really is. It's yeah. like, and, and so, um, and then and that's when my world opened up. Like really, as a as a musician, like uh, just yeah, I was I, f I had this level of confidence that came over me that I was like, I can do this. I can. Well, it do seemed this. like it, in your mind you had built it up as a really big challenge. It and, was. It was. Um, is it? What made you land on that and stick with it and be so passionate about? that i mean you had been everywhere right? else before. i could have been doing any of this i know I, I could have been like i don't even know it was like i think you know like i was i had a band i, I started i started I, I, okay so here it is i was playing in every i was playing in other people's bands um other and, instruments I played bass. other instruments. I would play bass. Not guitar. And not guitar. Okay. I never played guitar in anyone else's band. Okay. I played guitar in my band. Um, but I, you know, it was, all of a sudden it was like, I just played guitar in my band and things started like, I started writing tunes a lot. I started writing more tunes and the band, I always dug a three-piece. I had a drummer and a bass player, and we we worked on a bunch of tunes, and then sometimes we'd have someone else, but um, I just felt like I was cultivating. I started my own band in 1991. I was like, I'm not going to play in anybody else's band. This is me. I started Crystal Blanc Band. But everyone back then, nobody did that. Nobody, everybody had a band with a name. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you're a fucking egomaniac to call <laughs> your band your own name. And I'm like, you fucking crazy? There's, there's Jimi Hendrix and Prince and sure. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eric Clapton, whoever the fuck. Right. I'm like, it's me, I'm, it's me. I'm gonna go do my thing. That's the way, if you wanna come play with me, you're gonna play in my band. And this, it's me. I'll go jam with, we can do whatever, but when it comes to doing this, I'm going to do me. That's it. Was it fashioned after some of the greats that you're naming? I mean, did you have that in mind? Is that really why? Not really. I was oh. just like, I was just kind of foolish enough to be like, I'm going to fucking try this. I'm going to do it. And then, then it started working. It was like, I, I wrote some tunes. We started getting like these spots to go play in front of a bunch of different people and all of a sudden it's like I'm going out and uh, I'm getting calls to go play before like people in the you know when when the touring shit was huge in the early 90s mm -hmm. and going playing and I just wanted to go play gigs I wanted to go play shows and do my thing and I had some of my tunes. And, and at that point, I was like concentrating. I was thinking, okay, if I do have an hour to go play before somebody, I'm going to go play all my tunes. And, and I, that was me. I didn't, I wasn't so much being a 
cover guy. Really? I was, yeah, I was playing my tunes. And then I went and made a record. Mm -hmm. um, I, I made a record, my first record, and uh, I put it out in 95 in a day when, you know, you could put out CDs. I sold a lot of records on my first record, you know. Yeah. Back you said you were, you were filling an hour, like your first band, uh, first... Well, we would go we'll play see. full gigs, uh -huh. but like I I knew that if I had an opportunity to go open up for any of these bands, they were going to give me forty five minutes or an hour to yeah. open for our opening set. So I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go play all my tunes. I'm gonna go. Well, that's what I was asking. You had an hour's worth of original music. Oh to... yeah, okay. I had like by that time I started like writing tunes that were writing blues rock sounding tunes that are you know that i was just writing i i started kind of doing it you know i i made some demos i went to austin texas and gave a bunch of demos away and then started going over there and going playing in texas go to austin houston i played you know, back in the day playing at Tipitina's. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when and I'm playing at Tipitina's when I'm 23 years old. You know, I'm like, I've made it. Right. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm playing fucking Jimmy's, playing Jimmy's Club in Uptown. Yeah. Go play there, go open up for bands, go play at Jimmy's. Um, you know, I could go and do any of these shows and go, and they put me in. I'd go to Lafayette, you know, go and open up for... You know, they call me, hey, bro, we want you to come open up for Sonny Landreth. Come open up for Jeff Healy. Come open up for uh, the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Or go, I had those opportunities where all of a sudden, it's like I'm going play before all these people, bro. I'm going play before they put me in front of anybody. I go play before Yellow Man. Mm -hmm. The reggae fucking rock star. Yeah. You know, I don't know who the fuck this dude is, but cool. Here we go. We're going to play. Yeah. You know? And then I go play before. Then they put me before all kind of people, man. I end up going playing before, you know, later on, man. It's, like, it's everybody. It's like going playing. Yeah. I mean. Walk us through. You know, walk us through. Because you're saying early 90s, this is happening. Yeah. Early 90s when the touring, a lot of bands were. Coming yeah. through and try, you know, blues yeah. traveler and sure. um, they like, you know, be a support act for yeah. any of these, you know. Um, so what's interesting to me is that you just decided it was going to be the Crystal Ball Band, and that's cool. But what I see is that you weren't so much into the idea, and I guess it, it happens more frequently today than ever that if a business is going to be a business, then it's going to have a logo. It's going to be kind of branded and recognizing so are bands to some extent you know what i'm saying right. so they come up with a band name and they have to have this aesthetic and this this kind of outer personality that you know oh they're uh, they got cowboy hats on their country you see what i'm saying right. so it, it's got the band has an identity yeah so what i was going to say is walk us through at that time what you were doing behind the scenes to keep this ball rolling yeah yeah so the main thing was like Okay, so when the Crystal Ball, when I start this band and all of a sudden I'm thinking, okay, we have no money. <laughs> First. Okay. <laughs> There's no money. Now, who's so, we? Who, who is we? You starting a band with who? Me, and it was, it was me and a drummer named Joe Breland. 
and then uh, the bass player, it was one after the other. It was James Slaughter first, then uh, this guy, Mark Piro, mm -hmm. came and played with me, who ends up, he ended up playing with uh, Papa Gross Funk, and he lives down, you know, plays a bunch of New Orleans bands and stuff. But so we have this, we have these tunes, and I'm thinking, okay, well, we're going out and opening up the shows and playing in front of these crowds, but I have no record. I have no, I have no record. Nobody knows. There's no internet. Had, that's why I was asking because yeah, you had none of the artillery, nothing, nothing, none of the artillery nothing. that not only that we have today because of technology, but back then as any sort of any tools, any sort of commercial machinery. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like you, no. did, you band didn't have some kind of name that gave it a face. It was right. you. You were the face. Yeah, there was but, none of which that. is great, but people yeah. don't know you from Adam. So how right. are they going? How are you being? How are you projecting yourself into? The, the hearts right. and minds of not only the crowd but booking agents in these these right. venues. Like, how are people finding out about you? Right. The only way that it's really happening is this: going out and playing gigs. That was the only way that you were going to get any any traction was to go and play gigs, and then. But my 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 real grace was that. Some of the people in this area or around here, I had a friend of mine who was helping me out. He was kind of, he would help me out. He would be like, look, I, I can help you get in opening up for so-and-so at Varsity Theater, Tipitina's. I mean, I'm one of the first, I'm the one of the first bands that even played with anybody at the, when House of Blues is brand new in New Orleans. It's mm. brand new. They're like, Come and open up for Edgar Winter, mm -hmm. and I'm like, "Fuck yeah!" I got no record, I, you know. Yeah, I got no record. Right. Uh, and so, um, and so, so what happened? We're out playing. Things are getting happening. I got these songs, and they're just floating out in fucking space because there's no record. And so. This buddy of our, I, I say buddy, I didn't know the dude from nobody. He comes and sees me playing in a club here in Baton Rouge. And he's like, okay, dude. He's like, you, you've got, you've got it. Mm -hmm. He's like, you've got it. He's like, I've got a studio behind my house. And he goes, I want you to come and... I'm offering to you, you come record in my studio yeah. and you don't have to pay me anything up front. You just come and we'll track and we'll get your hours and you need a record. And I mean, it, can you imagine? I mean, like, I got nothing. This time, there's no internet. There's no computer in somebody's house. There's no digital audio workstation. Someone's yeah. working Pro Tools in their house. There's like only thing people had was a Tascam cassette multi-track four-track recorder. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And I didn't have that because my ass was broke. 
Yeah. I was driving around a 1974 Ford Econoline van. But you see, people like us, I don't feel like we look at that as like a desperate time because we no. weren't brought up around any no, of that. No, we didn't have nothing to, anyway. People today feel like you absolutely have to have that to make shit work, and it's yeah. just not... There was a land before the yeah, internet. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Totally. There was a land before all yes. of these things. But there were still a few key elements that you were missing, and that's how I was wondering how yeah. things started so, to open. And, uh, so, I mean, yeah. just, just grassroots efforts and networking, it right. sounds like so, word of like, mouth. I would go out, literally, I would go out and play some gigs. I made some T-shirts with my picture on them, said Chris LeBlanc Band, and sold them. And I started saving all that money Mm -hmm. Then I would sell T-shirts on my gig and just throw it in an envelope, tuck it under the carpet in my house. Yeah. Here we go. One day I'm going to make some music one day. So I go to this dude's studio. We start getting in there and start cutting tracks. And I never spent much time in a studio before I made my first record. I wouldn't think so. No. Nobody yeah. has that. Right. Um, nobody, no. But I mean, your your father's band was a functional gigging band. It, yeah. It mostly covers. It was not yeah. recording original. No, exactly. It's not going recording any of your music. And like, even going into a... There was maybe a couple of studios in this city that someone had. And they were going to charge you however much, 50 bucks an hour or some shit to go in there. Yeah. No way. You can't go do that. So, I went in and we started cutting. And it took me a while, man. To like, I say it took me a while, but all of a sudden I was working with one of my buddies, this guy Wendell, he was an engineer, who had a band back in the day. He had played in a bunch of different bands. This guy was sharp. He had enough experience as an engineer. Sure. To, and he really guided me a lot. He was really guiding me. And he was one of the dudes that he knew that I had it. And he knew that I had the discipline from all these years of that. I mean, this is before, like, and to go in and go sing tracks, go sing in tune, sing vibe, sing focus, sing, I mean, just tireless hours, 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 making a record, making a record. And then all of a sudden it was like this point where I had nine tunes that I had laid out and here they are, they're coming to life and I got a fucking record in front of me that's like, wow. Yeah, I gotta. I'm I'm about to put out a fucking record, bro, and like, it sounded good. Yeah, it sounded really good. Um, the the tunes were good. We could go out and go, you know, and then, um, and I had started racking, but the pressure was on me, dude. Because here I'm driving around a piece of shit car, but I'm in debt. $8,000 already and I'm like how the fuck am I gonna pay this to yeah so anyway so like I go we we I could have I made a really cool choice to like I had an opportunity to get my my first record mastered by Bernie Grunman okay who was like Bernie Grunman is back then he mastered the biggest records you could listen to and hear that were on the fucking radio, classics, whether it was Billy Joel, Whitney Houston, blah, 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 you name them. He, the mastering, yeah. the best, <laughs> the best. That's what he put on your record, huh? Yeah. That, that kiss. And he did, yes. He put the kiss, brother. I sent him, it cost me, back then it cost me $2,000 to have my, which is nothing to yeah. have a whole record mastered. Yeah. 
And he mastered my record, bro, and made my record sound like a real record. And I knew back then that if I wanted to have any legitimacy to what I was going to do, my record was going to fall between Lenny Kravitz and Led Zeppelin on the rack. Uh -huh. at the record store yeah and it better fucking sound pretty fucking good <laughs> that's funny no shit yeah and i was going out and playing i was going you know and i put out a record so here i got this record let me know get ahead of myself. i had this record it comes back we go to press with it it's all independent everything go everything the record comes i got the record and I booked a show at the Varsity Theater. I was like, okay, we're gonna have a record release party. It sells out. It's like a thousand people there. Okay, it's nineteen. Wow. I'm telling you, it's packed. When is this? This is nineteen ninety-five. Okay. Okay. So we did all the promotion we could, radio, flyers, no internet, no nothing, you know, promoted it. Man, come out to our show. We're bubbling. It gets packed. In one night, okay, watch. I had ordered a thousand CDs. My first thing, right? 1995, in one night, I sell over 450 CDs. Nice. In one night. Yeah. And for like 15 bucks a piece. Yeah. So, like, I'm able to pay off my record on the first night. Pretty much, like I was gonna say. I mean, uh, you had dropped a chunk of change on the recording and then the mastering, yeah. And then, but you still came came in yeah. strong with a thousand. Yeah, came. Yeah, exactly. And so then I was able to order more seat. You know, ordered more, and then then the ball keeps. Then the, you know, then the ball was rolling. Then I could go out and play shows. Had a record to sell. Yeah. You know, and then. Uh, my record had just, my first record, we had put it out. It's independent, you know, we don't have no record deal. Um, uh, we go play at the House of Blues. Uh, first, House of Blues just opened up in New Orleans, and they're like, we go play. Uh, well, no, 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 no. I played, I, I played House of Blues when they had just opened up, and I had no record. I played with Edgar Winter. Mm -hmm. Then when my record comes out, we go play before Kenny Wayne Shepherd mm -hmm. over there, and it's a packed room, and uh, it's just funny. I remember them like House of Blues wanting to take a chunk of money off of each one of my CDs, and I'm like, I got an idea. I'm not going to sell CDs. I'm going to fucking give them away off the stage. How's that? <laughs> and all these people start gathering, yeah. like giving out CDs. I'm like, you know, whatever. I don't care. You know. Kenny Wayne Shepherd's dad, who was his manager, he fucking got pissed at me. He's like, you can't do that. It's like, yes, I can, because they're mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not only that, but you yeah. kind of kind of a little fuck you to the people yes. that are trying to step Yeah, you want to take money? No, I'm going to give them all away. How's that? Yeah. And it just, like, it just built up, man. It was one of these things that was like, you know, and really I, st I started, again, playing, selling some CDs off the stage, at the gigs, wherever we could. And then I made another record. I made another, I was able to, it was just a way to like get to record more music. So sure. I made my second record. And then uh, in 98, put out, you know, the band's playing, I put out, some members had changed 
in the band. And, uh, and by this time I was like really, I felt like my songs were getting better. You know, I felt like my songs were really getting better. At this point in time, how, what's the pie looking like as far as cover material and, and original material when you're performing? I think it depended on like where we would go play. Okay. A lot of, that has a lot to do. Like, a, uh, I would always go out and play a bunch of my tunes, uh, but then mixing in. If I were playing covers, I I just played the cover music I wanted to play certain tunes that I, you know. Again, Prince, Jimi Hendrix. Um, I was at that time. I mean, I'm a fan of all of the, all the old classic rock and and blues too. I, you know, playing the blues is. Uh, I always dug playing blues. Like blues is like has been a thing for me, man. It's blues is, you know, I could relate with playing the blues because. When I picked up the guitar, I mean, I'm playing, I'm playing what sounds natural, and it's blues. Yeah. You know all the all the music that I, you know, whether it's I mean, ACDC is like a revved up blues band. Yeah, I mean, blues <laughs> blues got its it's, it's, every, it's Led yeah, Zeppelin. blues is it's, the roots for so many yeah, different genres so of music. To, I was able to, and then I was then I really got into like, I was like, okay. Along with like, you, you would have never known it because here it was, I was like crafting these tunes. I say crafting tunes, but trying to push the boundaries of my abilities to go, I don't want to just write these comfortable, I, I don't want to always, I didn't want to always fly in perfect weather. Yeah, I, I, I I'm not that dude. I want to like push myself into where, you know, I want to make myself better in something. The only way to do that is to make yourself uncomfortable a little bit. And you're, you, you have to, you have to, the only way you get better is to go into the unknown. And then sure. you get known. Did, you, did know? you find yourself doing that? Um, I mean, not so much intentionally, but I was going to bring up the point that you were kind of taught that early on in high school. Yeah. So when it came to doing it, now, let's say 95 on or whenever you're speaking of, was it so much because that's the way you were taught or was it more, did you, did you view it as exploration or character building? Like what was the point yeah. for you? What I was felt the point? like it was going to make, I felt like if I, I felt like if I pushed myself into places where I didn't, if I pushed myself into places that I wasn't so familiar with, it was going to spark something that would be fresh that I felt was going to carry me. Okay. Something that's fresh instead of just like playing something that felt so familiar that it's just going to be, I kind of didn't want to take the easy road. I don't know why. I just knew that if I pushed myself <clears throat> to explore the space yeah. that it was going to be better for me. It would be better for me to, I would feel like I've accomplished something. Sure, I get it. Uh, you know. Stagnation, I don't believe it to be 
rewarding or stimulating. You know right. what I mean? So, it's just kind of there. You yeah, know? but I mean, a lot of people are tempted to do remain in that comfort zone. Do you yeah, know what I mean? Because bro. because that's kind of a reward in itself, I guess, to, right. to feel comfortable and prolong this yeah. pleasant <laughs> pleasant space that we're all in. You know? Right. But, right. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're not if you're not afraid to kind of step outside of yourself, uh, it, it can be incredibly rewarding, you know. Exactly, man. I, what I, can you think of anything that came specifically out of that tr- that well, train of thought? I for guess? sure, man. My second record was like different in a lot of ways than my first record. Yeah. My first record was like a like a blues rock. Uh, riff, riff, blues kind of rock, but also had song format, you know, kind of, I had a couple, I had one, one soul ballad tune kind of, uh, bluesy kind of vibe on that, you know, that's kind of where my first record was in this blues rock sounding place. And then pushing myself into another place to like try to get better songs and to try to push myself into like growing melodically, growing musically, just taking a chance. Sure. Take a chance that a give no fuck chance. I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks I'm going to go here because it's only capturing this moment, you know. And so my second record turns into this record that has like some pop sensibilities about it that made me, that like, it still had rock, it still had like a, a, a blues thing, but also it was like, I was making, I made a, a great rock and roll sounding record, man. I believe my second record I worked, I worked twice as long on my second record as I did mm-hmm. on my first record. And then I put out this record and everyone's like, oh man, it's kind of not what we thought it was going to be. And I was like... Exactly. Right. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thanks, you know? <laughs> it's the sophomore record that I was like, I didn't fucking make my second record to sound like my first record. It's Honestly, like, man, I, I talked to a, a ton of musicians and for their first and second bodies of work that is so commonplace because the right. first the first album you might have spent the first 10 years of your life assembling right. that material it came from so many different avenues in your life so many places places and spaces like uh Donald yeah. Bird would say yes. and, um but to to kind of and you said you worked twice as hard on a second one but that was a laser beam focus man yeah. So, but all of that material, it it kind of built upon the the first body of work because you kind of focused that. You know what yeah. I'm saying? You found your identity. In, yeah. in the beginning, you were kind of saying, "I'm all of these things," and in the second body of work, it, it's kind of more of who you are. It's more focused, I would think. Right, and taking a, a little chance to go. You know what? Uh, I don't. I don't. I'm not subscribing to any. Um, to kind of any kind of formula that I just wanted to like, I knew I had, I was grouping a, a, again. At the same time, you're like, I'm, I'm sitting here, all these songs come from 
you know, being somewhere and it comes from your imagination and then it somehow comes out maybe on a guitar or, and then you're piecing and you're plugging holes and you're trying to go and then you go to go make this record and then, you know, I used to believe that, you know, people had an idea of a song and they just put this thing out but then you don't realize that when you're making music or that you're making a record, you're actually, you're just, you're just kind of form, you, you have these ideas. And then when you go to go record and what comes out and in the moment, you're settling kind of for what is, what you're getting in the moment. Like I could, I could sit and work and I did, I would drill myself my most of my work was uh, singing these things and selling these lines and selling these work and and singing in tune, singing vibe, singing and there was no like there was no going back and you know editing uh, like now that we do with recordings. Sure. There's no <clears throat> editing and fixing this one word here. I mean, you had to. When you punched in on a, on a, I, I recorded my second, okay, on my first record, I record on ADATs and a mixer, I, three ADATs, 24 tracks of digital, and that all kind of, you can, you can cut and, and punch in and it has a certain thing there. Okay, it's a whole nother thing when I go to go record my second record and I'm on a two inch tape machine, mm -hmm. a two inch tape machine that's 24 tracks. And when you go to go punch, you got to be very careful when you're recording to tape how you're punching. Because there is, when you punch, whatever you did before is goodbye. Mm -hmm. And you can, you got to be very careful about what's happening. So, and then about, you can hear punches on tape. Oh, okay. that you can hear punches. Yeah. You can hear, you can hear a little something that's like, so that was a whole lesson in itself. So it made me realize I'm recording on the tape. I got to have performances. It's got to be like, yeah, if I got to fix this one word, I got to sing a whole phrase so that I can get to the end of this thing so we can punch out and it don't sound like a punch. Yeah. You don't just punch little, yeah. you don't punch. So it was like a whole nother thing. It was a whole nother lesson in my ability to deliver the goods in the studio setting. And then after recording a couple of records, then I become like studio guy. I became to where living in a studio, working in a studio, going playing on other people's tracks, going playing on other people's records. That's just every day. Every day going doing something. Then I was also had a friend here that I would do he he had a line in on uh, doing a lot of like television and radio. Mm -hmm. So I started going doing voiceover work. Okay. I would go do voiceover work uh, and and then I would also go play on stuff. Or do, but more singing or speaking, you know, whether it's singing a commercial, sure. singing a television commercial, singing a radio, uh, reading out text for some political ad or somebody's restaurant or whatever you know mm -hmm. I, I started having to i i know how to manipulate my my talents and my voice and all these things to 
go from where it's just acting it's just Showing, all acting yeah. everything is acting the uh the second album the process uh how did it differ from the first you already touched on the equipment yeah. you were using but uh was this uh still a professional setting with um recording oh, yeah. student and you sent oh, it yeah. off to get mastered new by the same guy or new guy by, yeah 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 same Good guy. great so new studio uh-huh um different equipment same engineer okay. that I used on my first record. Name, do me a favor, name the, the studio yeah. and the engineer if okay, you recall so, I don't so, know if you did or not. So the first, the first place that I played, the first place that I recorded on my first record was at a guy's house, behind his house. This guy's name was Riley Etheridge. Okay. And his, his room was, his studio was behind his house. And the engineer on it was a guy named Wendell Tilly. Okay. And, and then, was this like, uh, were they calling themselves a company or is it just nah, something just they had like, for themselves? Yeah, this was a dude. This was uh, Riley. Riley was a uh, Merrill Lynch guy. Okay. And a musician. He was a musician and he was a Merrill Lynch guy that got into money at a young age in his life mm -hmm. and had a cool house and was like, I'm building a fucking dope studio. Nice. Yeah. And so that's the, he's the guy who told me. He, it was at his house. He didn't have any overhead. He's like, you come and record in my room, you know. Awesome. And, and, uh, which was perfect. I was like, good, because I don't have any money right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. And, and so then the, the, it was very different the second time around. And then the right? second time around, um, so Wendell Tilly actually built him. He got a studio, his own studio, mm -hmm. which was which was a place called Kingfish Recording okay. here in Baton Rouge. It was yeah. a studio that was a really, really nice, big, he had built up a great control room, a great cut room, a big, nice cut room. Uh, very nice. Bigger than this whole area we're in now. Very nice, big cut room. Sounded good. All designed out studio. And uh, so the setting was really good. I was able to spend a lot more time on the second record. Um, and then it was exhausting, really, because I'd worked, I would work tirelessly. Just singing, really. Singing is the thing that takes it out of you. It's just one of these things that's yeah. so physical, so the discipline. And then you go in one day and you're thinking, I'm going to get all this shit done. And then you have a sinus thing and it sounds like, <laughs> no, not, what was, nothing gets done today. What was, you know? the, uh, what was the motivation for the heightened worth, work ethic in the second album? I mean, oh, obviously yeah. it's a personal... It's a personal, creative, expressive oh, yeah. thing you that you're working on. Yeah, you, you totally. Know. But you, did, is there something that occurred in the first album, during the first album, that made you want yeah, to everybody sharpen starts, your chops? Yeah, yeah. everybody was, starts talking about who you are. Yeah. And I have to live up to what everybody says so it was about So the pressure me. of, of oh, the, the success pressure, of the first yes. album? Yes! <laughs> yeah, the pressure is like, that's what people don't understand. That, I, I learned how to work under levels of pressure that are unbelievable. Yeah. It's like, what I mean is like, in a moment of performance, you have to know the material so well, you have to be in this way that you're, 
it, you become like a machine. I just machined out. It was like, I, I just know how to do that now. When it comes to like, in the moment, it's like surgical focus. Nothing exists outside of this thing. Yeah. There's nothing. It's boom. You are performance. Everything just drill, 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 drill. Work, 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 drill, drill. And like, yeah, to become superhuman in, in your delivery of music or however it's going on. And then, so with the second record, there's all these songs. I thought the record was killer. I'm like, I can't fucking wait to put out this record. Sounds great. Put out the record. I, I ended up sending it off to Bernie Grunman again. Okay. Great mastering and put out this record that sounds killer, killer. So the truth of it is now is in hindsight, like those first two records, my first record come out in 95. My second record came out in 98. I can put out on those records right now and they sound, to me, they sound really good. Like I'm proud of that over mm. the years, you know, like there's a time where like, I could be, I put on, I can put on these records now and go back and go, you know what? I made decisions in my life, but I can put on these records and they fucking sound good. Yeah. And that matters to me. Absolutely. That matters, bro. Okay. So I put out the second record, go out and press and, you know, everyone's like, wow, he's got it, got it going on. I'm going again, going, playing, building up a crowd here, there. I'm going. Anytime, you know, I get calls to go, uh, you know, I would go and play, you know, Tab Benoit calls me up, hey, come play before me in Houston, Texas. Come play before me in New Orleans. Come play, but, you know, we just, I was in this circle of people that I'm just kind of, a lot of people still didn't know who I was. A lot of people still don't know who the fuck I am. Sure. It's just because that's the world we live in. There's everything and there's nothing at the same time. Yeah. It's just like that, right. you know? And it's you and I know this because we're in that world, you know? But it's like, there's when you have everything, you have everything and nothing. It's yeah. like, what? You know? So, um, second record, I'm like, yeah, okay. I put my second record out. It so happens that on my second record release, I have a party again at this theater here. Sold out, packed, great, we're moving records. I meet this dude. He's in town. He works for RCA Records in Los Angeles. He's like, You're, you got a really great thing going. What are you doing? I'm like, well, you just saw what the fuck I'm doing. I'm playing, I'm going out and I'm putting out a record. I got my own thing, I'm doing my own thing. He goes, you need to come out. So, dude, I was corded, and like, this is in 99. RCA flies me and my band to Los Angeles, California, to go out and go like, showcase for the RCA record company. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, you got it going on. You got a bunch of songs. I also, not only did I just put out this new record, but I like, I, by this time, I had got a, a recording set up in my house with a little 8-track and a mixer, and I'm still 
record, put out a record, but then now I'm recording my own shit. Yeah. Recording more stuff in my house, working on it all the time. More new songs, just building up content. I'm just like, I know if I get a library of music, someone's going to fucking listen to it. Sure. Someone's going to go, wow, this guy's got some fucking songs, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I just started like building up content. Well, then I go out, they heard a few of my tunes and they were like, yeah, you got to come out. So they set up a showcase. We go out. I spent a week in California. Uh, they put me, I'm at this, I'm, I'm on a showcase gig at a place called The Gig on Melrose in California, playing for all the RCA record people. This is when Foo Fighters are on the RCA label, Vertical Horizon, all of these kind of like pop rock bands that are, the internet is brand new. Sure. It's all the shit's just fucking exploding. There's like all the shit going on. And you could be a band like us that just has tunes and has music and gets fucking signed. That you can't do that no more. That's fucking twenty five years ago. Let me There's ask nobody you this. just gets fucking signed no more. It <laughs> hadn't occurred to you to 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 I guess ply your wares elsewhere. Uh, did it seem like the playground was big enough here? Because, I mean, that's not an novel idea. A lot of musicians, right? you know, like you and I were talking about Dr. John before we started recording. Right. He was one of them. I mean, they, they reached a certain point yeah. in their lives where the city just wasn't as supportive of right. the night scene and its players. And right. they ended up, you know, making the great migration to L.A. Or, you know, right. This, okay. this didn't occur? So, Oh, it totally occurred. But I mean, it occurred to you in your mind. It occurred to me in my yeah. mind. And I'm like, okay, this is starting to happen. And this is, and I'm married. I'm married at this time. Yeah. I'm married, no kids. I go in 1999, I get courted by the record label. They're like, man, you know, you should really think about moving out here to California. And I just found out my wife is pregnant. Oh, wow. I'm like, wow. So here it is. It's like, I go out to California. All this shit's popping. All this stuff's going on. And I just find out I'm about to be a dad. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. And something real life it's real life it's real life I'm in this world of I'm in this world before it's me and I have a wife but I don't have a kid and I'm in this world of Chris 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 just drill 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 and and I'm like doing it and it's happening and it's 1999, and in 1999, I'm 30 years old already. And I've, I've done all this shit, played all over the place, played with all these people, travel over here, go do this, travel gigs, boom, all this shit. And I'm out in California, and before, right before I go to California is when I find out I'm gonna be a dad. <laughs> so I'm going out there, and this is on my mind, course you know everything but and I'm thinking you know 
And they're like, you know, you ought to really think about coming and move to California and come out here and pursue it. Because being out here, if you're out here just for a little while, shit can like grow really big. And I'm like, I get that. But I'm already, I've already got it going on where I'm at. Mm -hmm. I've got it going on. I'm a homeowner. I bought a house. Uh, I got cars. Got I'm working. I'm like a successful independent musician dude who's like hustler. Yeah. Banging. And and I come back from California and I, I mean I'm in the office at RCA and they're we're talking. I'm looking on the walls and it's fucking <laughs> like I said it's everybody who's on the record label back yeah. then. Yeah. Maroon 5 or whoever the fuck all these bands and all this shit and I'm like you know I get it. I get it. I mean, it's like I get what's going on, and at the same time, I'm like, I wait. I came back home, and I'm like, you know, I'm gonna start. I'm just gonna continue on. I didn't get a record deal. Uh, I'm still playing gigs, working, selling CDs, going, doing this thing. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I'm gonna live in my reality. That's what I'm gonna do. Yeah. I'm gonna live in my reality. Because if you don't live in your reality, you're fucked. Yeah. You're fucked. You're done. People in this business, they can everyone tells you exactly what the fuck you wanna hear. Yeah. And they do. It's disingenuous. It's and it comes so, from all angles. It is so yeah. disingenuous. It comes from all angles. It comes from people you don't know that have something for you and you think that something is something and it's really nothing it really is and so um and i was just i, I was like I, I made a decision i'm like i'm staying here for now well then i have a kid you know we have a kid my son's born in october of 2000 yeah and uh my life changed my life changed into a way where there was Nothing that was cooler than this. Being a dad, sure. having a kid. I mean, it just, you know, you know, when yeah. you, it's just growing up. It's like doing that. And then I wasn't going to like, I, you know, no song, no music was going to be, that I made was going to be any cooler than another minute being with this kid. And sure. Being... I, I'm responsible for this kid, and um, and I was, I was, I was that dude. I I did it, and then so with that in mind, spending a bunch of time with a kid, I I didn't write a bunch. I had a few new tunes that I had worked on, but didn't write a whole new record. Mm -hmm. And I thought I don't have a bunch of time to go make a long record and spend all this time making a record. So what I do, my buddy goes, look, man, I got this, there's a little chapel that's in downtown Baton Rouge, a little chapel down there. And he had just got his Pro Tools rig and his computer and he goes, bruh, you need to make, he's like, you need to make, you should really think about doing some acoustic tracks. Just play, yeah, like a performance record. Bunch of my friends are like, you need to make a fucking. Instead of making a produced record, that you need to make a performance record. 
Hey, people. Listen, I had such a great time hanging out with Chris LeBlanc, and we really got to talk, and it turned out to be a really long episode. So we're going to break this one into two parts. You can come back in two weeks and catch the second part of that. Um, I really appreciate everybody listening, and now I'm going to give you all the outro so you have some closure in your life. Thanks. Check it out. We all pretty much start off like jam bands. We get together, we push our souls out through the speakers. We look around the stage, read off of one another, and, you know, after so much time, we know where the next person is going. Aside from those connections, we build connections with the fans, and that means the world to us. That's why listeners like yourself are so important to us. We'd love to have you back, so hit the button and follow the show. You can also support this show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash New Orleans Music. That's buymeacoffee.com slash New Orleans Music. And remember, you can find music videos, albums, articles, and interviews with bands like my own, Pocket Chocolate, on neworleansmusicians.com. Thanks for listening.